0: previous episodes of the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, Google Play. So I want to start out tonight with a correction of sorts to last week's show. Now, you might be confused as to why I'd be adding a correction uh, slash addendum to a musical show. um, Since last week, I mostly um, played uh, different Science uh, oriented musical uh, numbers, most of them from YouTube. Um, and I actually recommended the YouTube channel of one of those people um, who goes by the moniker of Z Dog MD. Uh, Since that time, (laughs) I have seen a different video with him in it where he is just talking with a friend um, and they're reacting to something and I found that video pretty disturbing. Um, It brings out some really old and tired cliches such as um, the idea that you can be racist against white people, um, which I don't believe you can be. You can be prejudiced towards white people, but... um, trying to equate the uh, experiences of people of color and white people uh, is just not something that I feel is something that I can support. Um, Therefore, I would most definitely like to rescind my suggestion that people subscribe to his channel. Um, I immediately unsubscribed as soon as I saw that video. Um, I got about five minutes into it and uh, turned it off in disgust. And, um, so yeah, I just wanted to put that out there because I think it's really important to, uh, not separate people necessarily from their art. Um, I'm not particularly fond of that, um. I understand that we all have problematic ideas and there's always going to be some sort of opinion that we hold that others find unpopular, um, but I try not, my best not to support people who are vocal about certain issues or behave in certain manners. Um, you know, for instance, I will never see a movie that Mel Gibson is in and I'm very distressed um, that he is once again apparently being considered family friendly. Um, so yeah, I wanted to make sure that I talked about that at the top of the show um, so that I was clear that I don't support anything like that Um, because it's very it was very upsetting to me and on the complete opposite uh, end of that I would like to give a shout out to the fact that today is the anniversary of uh, the day that Rosa Parks deliberately had herself arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus And, um, if you don't know, which you should by now, (laughs) but if you don't know, this was actually the end, um, or not the end. This was actually not the first thing that she had ever done. She was already a very, very amazing, um, part of the civil rights movement. And, um, so she had already done a lot of work. And if you don't know about that, you should find out about it because she was an amazing woman. And just for one more little uh, thing before we get started, I want to remind you that if you haven't done anything to support net neutrality uh, yet, you should do that because um, this is a huge, huge issue, uh, especially as a community based radio uh, station that has a presence on the internet and is completely unsponsored has, you know, all of our budget goes to the basic runnings of this uh, station, that net neutrality is something that's really important uh, to us. It's really important to democracy. Uh, It's really important for small businesses. It's just, it's incredibly important. And if we lose net neutrality, we are going to have a really hard time getting it back and a really hard time moving forward in our country and so please do what you can. Um, There are a million websites out there, uh, hilariously enough, (laughs) that will guide you through the process of making your voice heard as far as supporting net neutrality. Okay, so let's actually talk about science now. Um, so I am going to start out with a couple of stories about archaeology, because that's one of my favorite topics. And um, this one also has shades of how a lot of times reporting on these sorts of stories isn't necessarily 100% accurate. Um, that a lot of times people will exaggerate what is going on here uh, in mainstream media outlets. Now, this is a pretty mild case, um, but I think it's sometimes interesting to look at the mild cases because in some respects it's like, why did you even bother trying to make that more sensational? It's not even that big of a thing. And so this was a story about a supposed Uh, 3,000-year-old castle that had been discovered beneath the surface of Lake Van in Turkey. Now, one of the really interesting uh, errors that most news outlets uh, repeated was the idea, first of all, that there were archaeologists involved in uh, the team of divers who discovered the ruins. Um, And of course, the other big one is the fact that These divers may not even have been the ones who almost certainly are not the ones, in fact, who discovered these ruins. And so it seems like the divers, headed by Tassin Ceylon, an underwater photographer, have been exploring the lake for the past 10 years. They've documented both natural and man-made features in the depths, including living organic structures called microbiolites, Uh, which are basically, they have a similar structure to coral, um, but they are made of a different kind of um, organism, as well as archaeological sites, including a Russian ship that sank in 1915. However, the team does not employ an archaeologist. And it turns out that when archaeologists were consulted, they suggested that these ruins are not actually a new discovery, but were in fact described in papers written by researchers in the 50s and 60s during several surveys of the Lake Van region. And so it was also suggested that the ruins were from the ancient. Urartians, who lived in the area around 3,000 years ago. Now, partially, this was based on a the finding of a drawing of a lion on one of the walls. And apparently, the lion was a popular symbol of the people of Uratu. However, the archaeologists suggest that the lion is most likely of medieval origins. And so when live science, for instance, reached out to archaeologists, Archaeologists, there was agreement that there was nothing very new or remarkable about the structure—medieval castle walls and probably an eratarian site," said Jeffrey Summers, an archaeological research associate at the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute. In addition, Camelotin Caragul. An archaeology professor at Marmara Universite uh, noted after viewing an image of the masonry, which consists of square-cut stones, he noted that the walls seem medieval or late antique period rather than Eratu. Uratian never used any material between Ashlar wall stones to connect each other. And so basically, he's saying if there's masonry there, then it's not this ancient uh, stonework that it's actually medieval stonework. And so it might just have been using stones from the Eratu period. um, But they were not actually from that ancient uh, civilization at that point, because they had been reused in a medieval building. And as noted, Earlier papers had actually described all of these remains. So one paper by archaeologists Charles Allen Burney and G.R.J. Lawson, published in the Journal of Anatolian Studies in 1958, describes a medieval castle at Eldesavaz on the north shore of Lake Van, which they suggested had incorporated blocks from an earlier Ure- Euratian site. Now, of course, this doesn't make the site any less intriguing, just not as sensational as might otherwise have been suggested. And so for instance, nobody really knows when it sank into the lake. Um, and so it might be, I think that probably what happened is that there was probably some sort of earthquake. Uh, Turkey is an extremely, extremely geologically active uh, region of the world. And so they've had some pretty terrible um, earthquakes in recent memory. And so that's probably what happened is that there was an earthquake and the uh, building fell into the lake. Um, But of course, there's no way to tell at the moment uh, when that was or exactly what happened. So as with many things, really, honestly, with most things, uh, more research is needed. The area needs to be thoroughly researched by an archaeologist, Ceylon noted. For the time being, there is no team here to conduct dives and research on the castle. Um, so for now, we're not going to know much more about it other than it's there. And it is pretty interesting. Um, you know, underwater ruins are always fun and Interesting, but this is definitely no uh, Atlantis. Uh, it's no magical uh, new discovery. It's the rediscovery of something that's neat, and uh, definitely at some point, if they can get some underwater archaeologists to be able to explore it better, um, that would be very cool. But again, it it's not as sensational as it was made out to be, and. Uh, I think that we do a real disservice to science when we're constantly trying to make everything really, really sensational. And, you know, we only want to talk about the breakthroughs and we never want to talk about any of the times when people find nothing or find the exact opposite of what they meant to find. Um, And so that's sort of a, you know, that's a real key issue in science reporting, in science in general. Uh, Even in just publishing and peer review of people who don't really want to publish negative results and things like that, because it's not as interesting. But we do actually have a very interesting story. So on the other side of Europe, there is a genuine new discovery. And so um, the paper has just come out on this. It is the first tangible archaeological evidence related to Julius Caesar's invasion of Britain. And so it's the first of actual physical evidence they've discovered in Britain. And so it started back in 2010 um, when a defensive ditch was found during a rescue archaeology dig, um, which was ahead of road construction through the village of Ebbsfleet beside Hegwell Bay Um, and rescue archaeology is just a general term for archaeology that happens um, you know when a road is being put in or something like that where you need to have some archaeology done and sometimes it turns into a real archaeology archaeological dig but a lot of times it's just get what you can and get out um, because the road is going to go through nonetheless and so that's why it's often called emergency or rescue, I should say, uh, archaeology. And so Ebb's Fleet is located in Kent, uh, which does overlook the English Channel. And so initially, the ditch couldn't be definitively connected to the particular Roman invasion. However, recent excavations at the site have confirmed that the ditch was indeed part of a Roman military fort built in the first century BC. At the time, the Isle of Thanet, uh, where Ebbsfleet is located, would have actually been separated from the mainland by a marshy body of water, which is later referred to as Wansom Channel. And so this is according to Andrew Fitzpatrick of the University of Leicester and head of the excavation group. And so the channel uh, was actually silted up in the medieval period. It was a combination of silting up and actually re- reclamation And so now the fort is actually away from the shore, but at the time it would have been right on the shore and, uh, they suspect that it would have been most likely been occupied by a garrison of Roman soldiers who would have been tasked with guarding the invading fleet. And so, uh, Caesar says that it, that it consisted of more than 800 ships. Um, and so basically they would have been garrisoned there to watch over the ships as uh, Caesar led the rest of the legions across Kent towards the River Thames. The purpose of the garrison is to watch over the fleet so that the Roman army can go home at the end of the campaign, Fitzpatrick noted. And so the team has determined that the fort is built in a similar style to other forts known to have been built by Caesar's forces in what is now France and Germany during this same period. In addition, they found human remains that indicate violent deaths, several non-British iron weapons, including a Roman pilum, uh, which would have been a javelin or throwing spear, um, favored by troops recruited from southern Gaul, which is a region known to have been favored by Caesar for recruitment. And of course, Gaul is now uh, France. In addition, the description by Caesar of the landscape matches what is found at the site. And so it's very possible that this is exactly where it was. The British gather to oppose the Roman landing in 54 BC, but they see 800 ships, and so they take fright and conceal themselves on the higher ground, Fitzpatrick said. So those statements, which are just incidental to the narrative uh, that Caesar is giving, give us clues about what the place looked like, and all those clues are consistent with the landscape around Ebb's fleet. And so, yeah, this is very cool. Um, and they also note that although Caesar did not leave an occupying army in Britain, uh, and in earlier uh, histories, it was kind of thought to have been a bit of a flop Uh, Later historians have felt that his achievement was actually um, something that was helpful. And in fact, his achievement would have been celebrated at the time uh, as basically having extended the borders of the known Roman world. Uh, So no one had been from the Roman world to this weird island out there on the edge of what they knew. And so this was pretty cool. Um, And also, it is now seen as instrumental in uh, paving the way for the later conquest and assimilation of Britain to Roman rule beginning in AD 43 under the Emperor Claudius. Okay, so let's switch uh, gears now and move on to another favorite topic around here, which is the ocean uh, so we've got some interesting stories about uh, fish and mollusks and uh, so yeah first off is the announcement of the discovery of the newest deepest dwelling fish species so according to the uh, paper on this fish uh, Pseudoliparis swarei Um, It is a species of snailfish, which is slightly pink and translucent. It also happens to live around 26,000 feet below the surface of the Pacific in the Mariana Trench. And so the holotype specimen was dredged up from the deep back in 2014, and it has now been described and is officially recorded as the deepest living fish. This is the deepest fish that's been collected from the ocean floor, and we're very excited to have an official name, said lead author Mackenzie Gerringer, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington's Friday Harbor Laboratories. They don't look very robust or strong for living in such an extreme environment, but they are extremely successful. In a press release, the researchers noted that the pressures they live at compare to, quote, an elephant standing on your thumb, unquote. (laughs) And so the official paper was published in the journal Zootaxa. The researchers examined the DNA of the fish and also took 3D scans of bone and tissue samples. Snailfish seem to have a knack for living in the deepest reaches of the oceans, "'Snailfishes have adapted to go deeper than other fish and can live in the deep trenches. Here they feed on predators, here they are free of predators, and the funnel shape of the trenches mean there's much more food,' said co-author Thomas Lindley of Newcastle University. "'There are lots of invertebrate prey, and the snailfish are the top predator. They are very active and look very well-fed.'" In August, a Japanese research team recorded one of the fish at a record 26,830 feet. And so researchers suggest that this may be, may very well be the absolute limit at which these sorts of animals can survive. After a certain depth, the pressure becomes so great that it actually destabilizes proteins. And so though there may be actually, um, another creature out there that could at least tie. Um, And so there's another fish, which they have uh, very uh, imaginatively nicknamed the ethereal snailfish (laughs) uh, that has also been seen in this same depth range, but no team has yet been able to capture a specimen. And so of course, you know, until they actually can catch a specimen and describe it. They can't really say much about it. Um, And so the new snailfish is named after Herbert Swire, who was an officer aboard the HMS Challenger, which is actually the ship that discovered the Mariana Trench in 1875. Um, So that is very cool. You can see the the picture of them, they're, they, they're not very impressive looking, but they are very impressive when you think about exactly where they live. Um, They are definitely tough little cookies. (laughs) And so now I wanted to talk about something that's a little more familiar, um, the sort of common scallop. (laughs) Um, And so these little mollusks uh, that are well, frankly, delicious as far as I'm concerned. Sorry, scallops. Um, It turns out that uh, they have a different kind of vision than most of us do. So it turns out that actually for some marine animals, uh, not just scallops, that instead of using lenses to focus light onto their retinas, they actually have adopted mirrors to create images. And so an international group of biologists from Israel and Sweden have studied the eyes of these mollusks and found some pretty surprising things. Dr. Benjamin Palmer of the Weissman Institute of Science and co-author of the paper published in the journal Science studied the complex organization of the scallop's eyes. The researchers used various microscopic imaging approaches in order to discover how the reflective membranes are able to achieve spatial vision. They found that the eyes resembled those of tiny reflecting telescopes. Scallops have a visual system comprising up to 200 eyes, each containing a concave mirror rather than a lens to focus light, the researchers said the hierarchical organization of the multilayered mirror is controlled for image formation. From the component guanine crystals at the nanoscale to the complex 3D morphology at the millimeter level, the layered structure of the mirror is tuned to reflect the wavelength of light penetrating the scallop's habitat and is tiled with a mosaic of square guanine crystals which reduces optical aberrations. The mirror forms images on a double-layered retina used for separately imaging the peripheral and central field of views. Our work demonstrates the remarkable control the scallop exerts over the growth and arrangement of crystals to make a highly reflective mirror capable of forming functional images. Dr. Palmer and his colleagues noted in the paper, So in other words, um, what they do is that the scallops are actually creating layered mirrors uh, using nanoscale crystals. And so they are layering two kinds of nanoscale crystals to create this um, reflective surface that is able to then actually reflect the light onto their retina and in order to actually have that kind of uh, vision where they can see where things are moving, they've got two separate imaging um, systems for both their peripheral vision and their center field of vision. And um, so it's really interesting how they are able to do that. And so they are able to do that in the same way that, you know, um, sort of more traditional lens-based eyes work. And now, sort of why is this important to know? Uh, beyond it being simply very interesting and weird and wonderful, um, it's actually something that might in future uh, be applicable toward biomimicry in designing new optics. And so, for instance, lobster vision has already previously been used as an inspiration in telescope design and so all of these things that we learn through basic science might possibly have applications further on down the line and so um, you know that's one of those sort of plugs for uh, basic science research is that you know You might not think that looking at the weird eyes of scallops would lead to any kind of uh, technological breakthrough or engineering uh, fix or anything like that, but it could. And so um, I think it's really important to remember that there is a reason that people are looking at scallops eyes. It's not just a frivolous thing that, uh, and even if it was a frivolous thing, it's important to be able to know how our world works as far as I'm concerned. And I think it's really important to remember that scientists are doing these really important and intense explorations of our natural world. And uh, it'd be nice if more people actually respected that. Um, And on that note, let's take a break (laughs) and uh, come back for one more fish uh, and I based story and then we'll move on so hang on for just a minute hi i'm charlie i fight fires and i save lives my name's renee i'm a cardiologist i save lives my name's anthony i'm an emt i save lives you don't have to be a professional to save a life firefighters doctors and others save lives you can too don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Sassy. Today's episode: Bobcat in the Cave. Oh nuts, there's a bobcat in this cave. Save us, Sassy. <laughs> you will, but first you like to stress the importance of cat adoption. Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward CET. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I'm place at our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council nerd night noho is proud to support valley free radio where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art culture and science you can find us at noho.nerdnight.com By now, you have heard that using compact fluorescent light bulbs, or CFLs, can save you money on your energy bill. But have you heard that there is a law requiring Massachusetts residents to recycle them? Keep in mind, they can't be recycled curbside, so do your part. Drop off your used CFLs at your local participating retailer. For more information on recycling and where to do it, visit lamprecycle.org Massachusetts. And thank you. Okay, we are back and we are going to keep talking about weird marine animal eyes. And so researchers have also discovered actually an entirely new type of photoreceptor in the eyes of deep sea fish called pearlsides. And so they have adapted these these photoreceptors have evolved to adapt to the twilight conditions in which these fish actually uh, spend most of their time. So most vertebrate animals have a duplex retina comprising two kinds of photoreceptors. And I'm sure you've heard about this before. So there are rods for dim light vision and cones for bright light and color vision. However, because of the dim condition, Conditions in the deep sea, most deep sea dwelling creatures have lost their cones and have developed a simplex retina composed entirely of rods. Pearlside fish have these simplified retinas. However, their behavior patterns would suggest that they should actually have retained cones, and so the fish are most active during dusk and dawn, close to the surface, where light levels would normally require both receptors. Deep-sea fish, which live at ocean depths below 650 feet, are generally only active in the dark, so most species have lost all of their cones in favor of light-sensitive rods, said lead author Dr. Fanny de from the Queensland Brain Institute at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. And the Red Sea Research Center at the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia. Sometimes these uh, titles are quite long. <laughs> and so um, she goes on to say, pearl sides differ in that they are most, mostly active at dusk and dawn close to the water surface where light levels are intermediate. So, in order to determine how they are able to actually see in these conditions, the team studied the visual system of two different species of pearl sides, one from Norwegian fjords and another from the Red Sea. And what they found was really remarkable. Pearl sides being active mainly during twilight, have developed a completely different solution. Instead of using a combination of rods and cones, they combine aspects of both cells into a single and more efficient photoreceptor type, type, um, notes Dr. Busserls. And so the team calls the cells rod-like cones. Um, And it seems that they are basically perfectly adapted to the light that the fish live in. Our study improves understanding of how different animals see the world and how vision might have helped them to conquer even the most extreme environments, including the deep sea, said senior author Professor Justin Marshall, also from the Queensland Brain Institute at the University of Queensland. And so, yeah, very cool. All sorts of weird and wonderful eyes out there in the sea. And of course, as I'm always noting when I talk about the sea, there is, or the ocean, I should say, um, more specifically, is that there is so much out there in the ocean that we have yet to discover, to find. Um, It's just, there's so many things out there that we are still completely unaware of. Uh, The ocean really is almost a completely different world from the land And, um, you know, it's definitely one of those things where I talk about how people want to find aliens and go to other places. And for me, it's like, you should definitely be using all of that energy to look at things in the ocean. I mean, if you think about an octopus, an octopus is exceptionally alien compared to us. And so I just think that we would do much better to spend more money looking at the oceans and figuring out what the oceans have in them and uh, exploring them both for uh, our own knowledge and also to figure out how to stop destroying them um, because that is something that we're very good at. Uh, And so, for instance, I wasn't going to talk about it uh, in detail, but offhand, one of the new things that scientists would like to sort of find a way to get rid of is glitter. And uh, I know that that's a very polarizing uh, argument. So I don't want to talk about it too much because I know some people love glitter and some people hate it. Um, But the problem is, is that glitter is tiny little pieces of plastic. And when you put on glitter makeup, and then you wash off that glitter makeup, it goes into water systems, where it isn't necessarily scrubbed out of the water system in a way where it's captured. And so then this glitter ends up in the water system, which means it eventually ends up in the ocean, and then it ends up in fish's stomachs. Um, And that is a systematic problem uh, that we have in this uh, world in which a lot of our plastics are ending up eventually in fish's stomachs, and then those fish end up in birds, and so the plastic ends up in bird stomachs, and it just goes up the food chain, and um, it's a huge problem, and I don't have a solution, um, but hopefully someday someone will come up with one. All right, let's talk about ancient animals for a while. Uh, let's move on, because there's no good solution to that uh, this evening that we're going to figure out. And uh, so, yeah, let's move back in time and talk about some amazing finds in China. And so you've probably heard about this in the last day or so. Uh, There has been a huge cache of pterosaur eggs that have been found in China. And this is huge because literally previous to this find, only a handful of pterosaur eggs that were well preserved and that actually contained embryos had been discovered. And I'm talking eight three in Argentina and five in China. And so it's incredible to have found this huge cache. This this is amazing. Um, you know, it. I think that, you know, the people who found this probably are still like giggling with glee to themselves. Um, the researchers found a site which contains 215 fossilized eggs of Hemiteris tionsensis. Um I should say. Uh, a series, a species of uh pterodontinoid pterosaur, um, or a pteranodon, um, a species of pteranodon. And so these would have lived around 120 million years ago in what is now northwest China. And so the research Published in the journal Science by Dr. Shaolin Wang from the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology, uh, the Chinese Academy of Sciences, and colleagues from China and Brazil, used CAT scanning to peer inside the eggs, 16 of which actually contained various remains of embryonic specimens. The most complete contains a partial wing, along with cranial bones, including a complete lower jaw. The samples of thigh bones that remain intact are well-developed, suggesting that this species benefited from functional hind legs shortly after hatching, the paleontologist said. However, the structure supporting the pectoral muscle appears to be underdeveloped during the embryonic stage, suggesting that newborns were likely not able to fly. Therefore, we propose that newborns likely needed some parental care. Based on growth marks, we estimate one of the individuals to be at least two years old and still growing at the time of its death, supporting the growing body of evidence that pterosaurs had long incubation periods. Lastly, the fact that a single collection of embryos exhibited a range of developmental stages hints that pterosaurs participated in colonial nesting behavior. And so basically there's a lot of parallels here to the way that modern birds, um, are able to, uh, live and to have their offspring. And so they will often form colonies, uh, where the young are born and raised. Um, but there is that little difference there. Uh, the fact that some of the embryos appeared to have been two years old, uh, is quite a difference for an incubation period, uh, And so I was looking to try and find exactly how long uh, avian incubation periods are. And it looks like um, currently of the birds that are actually still uh, extant on the planet, that the winner is the emperor penguin with an incubation period that can last up to 67 days. So that's two months and change versus two years. It's quite a big difference. Um... And so, yeah, that's uh, pretty impressive. But of course, remember that this is only a loose comparison. Uh, Pterosaurs are not actually, uh, even though it seems counterintuitive, they're not actually related closely to the non avian theropods from which birds are descended. Uh, Birds are descended from uh, theropods. They are not, uh, they're very. They're very much not closely related to pterosaurs, um, even though one would sort of think winged uh, dinosaurs would lead to birds. But it's actually a completely different line that led to uh, birds. Uh, and so speaking of non-avian dinosaurs, there's actually a new study based on an extremely well-preserved fossil of the dinosaur Ancianoris. Um which lived in northeastern China around 160 million years ago. And so the study by University of Bristol paleontologists, Dr. Evan Saita and Dr. Jakob Winther, used what had been recently discovered, uh, what has been recently discovered about dinosaurs to create a new and more robust image of what the chicken-sized animal might have looked like. For instance, the primitive and now extinct feather design featured a short quill with long independent flexible barbs uh, that erupted from the quill at low angles and so this would have produced two veins and given the feather a forked shape and of course this is in contrast to the tightly zipped veins of modern feathers which you know if you if you smooth them out actually form what is basically a solid surface And so this feature would have made the dinosaur a rather fluffy (laughs) uh, little animal. And so the researchers suspect that these feathers may actually have been uh, even detrimental in some ways. Uh, They might have affected its ability to control its temperature and repel water and would have actually increased drag as it attempted to glide. And so um, obviously they had to make up for it in other ways. Um, They actually also lacked aerodynamic asymmetrical veined modern flight feathers, uh, which are also their flight feathers were also unzipped, which would have hindered the ability of the feathers to form a um, flight surface. Now, of course, to compensate because, you know, these animals did actually manage to get around nonetheless, uh, the animals would have actually, they believe, have had multiple rows of long feathers that would have given them the ability to create a smoother surface. In addition, unlike modern birds, um, Antionorus um, and other para-avians uh, had feathers on all four of their limbs, as well as elongated feathers fringing their tails. And so having this larger amount of feathers would have actually increased the potential surface area for gliding. So if you think of like a sugar glider, for instance, has the big flaps um, of skin and that's how they glide. So if you've got sort of big banks of, of uh, feathers on both your arms and your legs and even on your tail, that gives you more surface area. For them to be able to actually manage to glide. The novel aspects of the wing and contour feathers as well as fully feathered hands and feet are added to the depiction, Dr. Seda said. Most provocatively, Anchionoris is presented in this artwork climbing in the manner of Hwatsin chicks, the only living bird whose juveniles retain a relic of their dinosaurian past, a functioning claw. This contrasts contrasts with much previous art that places Paravians perched on top of branches like modern birds. However, such perching is unlikely— given the lack of a reversed toe, as in modern perching birds, and climbing is consistent with the well-developed arms and claws in paravians. Overall, our study provides some new insight into the appearance of dinosaurs, their behavior and physiology, and the evolution of feathers, birds, and powered flight. So yeah, this is very cool um, to be able to really start to visualize with more data, um, behind it, what these animals would have looked like. Um, because of course that's one of the most difficult things to do is to visualize animals that used to be alive and are no more. And there's no, uh, you know, you don't have any depictions of them at all. Um, and even when you do have depictions of them, if they're an extinct animal And there are, say, medieval depictions, they don't necessarily look anything like that. Um, I'm, for instance, thinking uh, when I was in college, I took a class and um, I was using a book in the rare book room that was a medieval um, bestiary And some of those animals are real animals. But if you looked at the illustration, uh, the one, of course, that is very famous is um, rhinos. So if you've ever seen medieval uh, depictions of rhinoceroses, uh, basically, somebody told someone what a rhinoceros looked like, and they made a picture of it. And it looks nothing like a real rhinoceros. Um, So even when you have that, it's difficult. But when you only have basically skeletons, it can be very difficult. And um, so yeah, I actually mentioned that last week. Um, and so I wanted to actually talk about that a little bit. So there were two paleo artists, John Conway and C.M. Kozman. Um, Kosman, sorry. And so they a couple of years ago, um, came out with a book and they did some drawings of basically, if you did if you drew modern animals in a manner consistent with the way that Hollywood has typically depicted dinosaurs based on their skeletal remains. And the results of those drawings from modern animal skeletons, including humans, are quite shocking. Uh, They don't look anything like the real animal. And uh, so for instance, John Conway notes that, The most common error is taking the skeleton and putting in muscle and then shrink wrapping the skin onto that shape. This ignores fat deposits, flaps of skin and and other soft tissues that living animals have. And so the two published this book back in 2012. It's called All Yesterdays, Unique and Speculative Views of Dinosaurs and Other Prehistoric Animals. And so Kozman also noted another problem, which is... In depicting dinosaur heads specifically, the reference has always been crocodiles," says Cozman. "The biggest thing is teeth and facial fat. Readers have to be aware that all dinosaurs they see in all media, and especially in popular culture, seem to have their heads flensed, um, which means the flesh has been taken off of it. They're, they've always got this these weird grins with only the vis- with only the teeth visible." But, of course, in fact, he notes that most animals have lips and gums and facial fat that actually obscures the teeth. Now, of course, this isn't necessarily a conscious act of distortion. Again, it's very hard to truly depict what an animal would have looked like based only on skeletal remains. However, the artist suggests that looking at modern animals and comparing their skeletons might aid in more accurate depictions. And so, yeah, um, I will definitely link to the pictures uh, of their interpretations from skeletal remains of animals that are actually in the real world, again, including a human. And they're all rather terrifying. Let me just put it that way. Um, yeah. So, okay, let us move on now. And uh, I wasn't sure if I wanted to talk about this, but I figure I should because it's very much Today's uh, big news, which is a story about whether or not uh, dogs are smarter than cats. And so, this is the newest foray in the uh, grand internet battle uh, to decide whether cats or dogs are better. Um, Now, of course, I personally don't think that these findings will really change anyone's mind um, on their preference for either dogs or cats. And uh, my particular preference is for both. So um, I have cats. I would love to have a dog. I just don't have the space for one or the ability to care for one right now. Um, one of the th- reasons I'm pro-cat is that they're much easier to take care of than dogs. Uh, just going to put that out there. But I love dogs um, too. So it definitely doesn't bother me uh, one way or another, what these results were. But it does look like dogs might come out on top. When looking uh, specifically, the researchers looked at the amount of neurons in the cerebral cortex. Uh, And so those neurons are basically uh, having a large amount of them means that you have more uh, cognitive ability available for higher order functions like thinking, planning, and complex behavior. This is the first study to actually count the number of cortical neurons in several species of carnivores, including cats, dogs, bears, and a range of other animals. In this study, we were interested in comparing different species of carnivorans to see how the numbers of neurons in their brains related to the size of their brains, including a few favorite species, including cats and dogs, lions, and browned bears said associate professor of psychology and biological sciences, Susanna Herculano-Huzel, who developed the method for accurately measuring the number of neurons in brains. And so the paper published in the journal Frontiers of Neuroanatomy found that dogs had the most neurons, but not the largest brains. According to the paper, cats have around 250 million neurons versus the 530 million cortical neurons for dogs. I believe the absolute number of neurons an animal has, especially in the cerebral cortex, determines the richness of their internal mental state and their ability to predict what is about to happen in their environment based on past experience, Herculano Huzel explained. Now the researchers had expected that when they looked at the brains of carnivore species that they would find more neurons in their brains as opposed to their prey animals. However, it actually turned out that wasn't the case. For small and medium-sized animals, they have around the same number of neurons, and for large animals, they actually have less than their prey animals. Now, of course, there is a reason for this um, that is easily suggested. And so um, the evolutionary pressures on predators and prey are roughly equal in smaller animals, uh, smaller and medium sized animals. But with those larger bodied animals, if you think about, say, a bear or especially a tiger, um, they have to sort of balance those large bodies with energy needs. Meat eating is largely considered a problem solver in terms of energy. But in retrospect, it is clear that carnivory must impose a delicate balance between how much brain and body a species can afford, um, the paper notes. So basically, the larger the brain, the more energy is required. And so for large carnivores, which which have sort of more sporadic feeding activities. Uh, If you think of lions, you know, they're not eating every day um, or tigers, they're, you know, getting something and then having to survive on that for a while. And so it really is a delicate balance of energy expenditure because of course, brain is the most uh, energy uh, you need the most energy for your brain. And so this apparently is a limit to the amount of brain development available to these larger animals. And so it was found, for instance, that a golden retriever had more neurons than a hyena, lion, or brown bear, even though their brains can be up to three times as large. Now on the extreme side is the brown bear, which had a brain size 10 times larger than that of a cat, but had roughly the same amount of neurons. The study also found that contrary to previous beliefs, the brains of domestic animals have not significantly shrunk in size compared to their wild com- counterparts. And they also found, unsurprisingly, uh, to anyone who has ever seen one in action or seen the some of the wonderful documentaries, uh, there's a great documentary on them about urban uh, species, that raccoons are particularly special. Raccoons are not your typical carnivoran, said Herculano Huzel. They have a fairly small brain, but they have as many neurons as you would expect to find in a primate. And that's a lot of neurons. And so this is, of course, part of the reason why raccoons are able to be so good at adapting and surviving, especially in the uh, urban landscape. They really are smart little devils. Now I will note, uh, before we, uh, leave for the evening that there is a potential conflict of interest here. Uh, Herculano Huzel notes freely that she is a hundred percent dog person. (laughs) Um, I'm kidding. I'm pretty sure that that did not skew her, uh, findings in any way. Um, but yes, uh, I'm going to stick to my adorable kitties for now, though. Uh, I'm okay that they're not quite as smart as some dogs. And with that, we need to uh, break off for the evening. Please do stay tuned for Civil Politics. Uh, I apparently will be guest starring, so if you want to hear more of me, stay tuned. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro.